Um, I want to open up uh, another song in the darkness for you this morning. I want to look at uh, Psalm 63. So we're going to turn to Psalm 63 uh, in a Bible if you have one. So this really, uh, this Psalm 63 is another song in the darkness. We've been looking at these uh, different songs that reflect something of different emotions, a different emotional life in the writers of the Psalms. And, and this one, is, is a, David is probably at one of his lowest points in his life. He's probably on the run from his son Absalom. His son Absalom has uh, taken over his throne. David has lost the throne and has retreated to the wilderness. His life is probably under threat. So he's probably at one of the lowest points in his life. And yet this psalm is also one of great intimacy. It's really a fantastic declaration of love, a declaration of great desire for God. And really what I think David is modelling for us is what does it look like to pursue God wholeheartedly, to experience intimacy with him, even in the darkest times. Let me read to you then uh, Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to open your word together, I pray that you would come and speak to us that you would come and open this for us, that you would show us what it looks like to desire you, to become a people who pursue you wholeheartedly, who find their delight in you, and who are making every effort to pursue you and find great intimacy with you. Amen. Amen. So why is this psalm relevant for us? I want to give you a few reasons. First of all, I think it speaks to those of us who are struggling. I know that not everyone is struggling, But some of us have found this time in lockdown really difficult. And probably the greatest difficulty in lockdown for many of us is a sense of loneliness, of separation from our loved ones. And actually, that's exactly what David's experiencing. He's been betrayed by his own son. He's had to kind of retreat to the wilderness. And of course, he's experiencing a kind of lowness, difficulty in that. And many of us can relate to that. not, Not all of us are suffering, but for those who are, this psalm is really showing us something of what it means to carve out a precious intimacy with God, to experience a delight with God, even in the darkest times. And actually, whether we're experiencing suffering or not, there's a sense to which in this time where we're not gathering together as frequently and we're not, we're not able to be together in person, spiritual flourishing requires us to grow that muscle of individual devotion to God that David is modelling for us. In a sense, we, we all want to be like David in this psalm. Second of all, this psalm really speaks to the universal deep longing in each of our hearts to be loved, 
I think it's true that in it, you can see this in all sorts of ways, that human, every human being desires to be loved and to be known. You can see this in our uh, pursuit of romantic relationships, how some of us feel that uh, if, if life is not worth living if we weren't, we're not in a romantic relationship. You can see this in our, our loneliness, the, the sense to which loneliness feels difficult because we are relational beings. We're made to be in relationship with others. You can even see this in, in something like the strength of, of sexual desire. Why does sexual desire feel so powerful? Well, of course, you can look at it as kind of just pursuing a physical sensation, but actually I think it's more than that. I think it's because we, we crave uh, intimacy with another. We crave connection with, uh, with another human being. Augustine, a third century theologian, uh, spent much of his life before he became a Christian uh, kind of engorging himself in sexual desire and sexual pleasure. And he argues that behind that sexual desire was actually uh, a desire for love. He said this, the single desire that dominated my search for sexual delight was simply to love and to be loved. And really what David is showing us in this psalm is that that we will find the, the satisfaction to that deep desire in each one of us in our relationship with God, that they ultimately the only place that will truly satisfy each human being's longing for love is by finding intimacy with God. And secondly, uh, thirdly, sorry, I think this psalm should radically reshape our vision of the Christian life. So if we're not a Christian, it may well be the case that Christianity feels unappealing. It feels... Um, quite like drudgery or deny, having to deny yourself of kind of lose all sorts of different freedoms and undergo certain things that you don't enjoy. I think that's really a wrong understanding of faith and it, and it really misses the wood from the trees because Christianity is fundamentally calling you to a relationship of love with the God who loves you. Of course, this will have huge implications for how you live and I'd say if you love someone, of course, it's going to change how you, how you act. But obedience feels more like delight than drudgery because we are following the commands of a God who loves us and who captivates us. I think that this psalm is giving us something of a window into the delight that Christians should experience. But actually, even if you're a Christian, I think this should reshape your vision of what it means to uh, spend time with God, your devotional life, even what it means to experience God. I think some of us uh, look at reading our Bibles and praying as a kind of chore, as something to, to be cr uh, cranked out. And we have a rather wooden or small vision of what it really means to, to experience intimacy with God. Actually, I think this psalm should radically reshape our vision of what it means to experience intimacy with God, to pursue him. And David is giving us three big building blocks. Uh, desire, delight, and discipline. I want to look at each one of those as, as part of what it looks like to pursue God. Desire, delight, and discipline. First of all, then, desire. I would argue that God wants you to be hungry. This psalm is, is really full of desire. Think about that first verse. Uh, really imagine, imagine what it feels like to be thirsty. David is really painting us a picture with his words. Imagine him kind of walking through the wilderness with a hot sun beating down. A uh, sense of maybe the, the, you can feel the sweat on his body. You can feel the, the, the way his throat is dry. Maybe even his whole body feels faint with thirst. It's a sense of saying, like, if I don't find water soon, I'm going to collapse. I absolutely need this water. And David's saying this is the kind of thirst that he feels towards God. This is the kind of spiritual longing that David has. Saying, I can't survive without your presence. There's an urgency to his desire. It's why he says, earnestly I seek you. It's also translated, early I seek you. It's a sense, sense to which David's saying, you're the first thought in my mind as I wake up. 
He almost feels a physical ache in his body for the presence and comfort of God. He says, um, my flesh faints for you. Another translation, my body longs for you. Some of you know exactly what that feels like, to long for the intimacy of another person, to long for someone you love, and you can almost feel it physically. And that's the kind of hunger that David is expressing for us. Note, this is not a kind of hunger for the things that God brings us. Actually, this is a hunger for God himself. And I would argue that this hunger that David experienced is actually something of a a hallmark of the Christian life. It's something we should all experience. In Matthew 5, Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, describes uh, people who will be satisfied in the kingdom. And he describes those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Saying God's people must be marked by a hunger. In 1 Peter, uh, Peter urges believers to have the same kind of hunger that a, 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 a newborn infant might have for the milk of his mother. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Think of the way a newborn baby just cries and cries for the milk of his mother, that kind of de- that deep longing that they express. Saying this is actually something of our natural state as children of God, or this is, what, this is, this is who we should be. Think about um, if you're a parent and you have a child and they, and they lack hunger, actually you think there's something wrong with you. If, you, if your child goes all day not, not being hungry, you think there might be something wrong with that child. In the same way as, as children of God, actually part of our, our hearts have been changed. We should experience this kind of God-given desire for him. And if we don't, then maybe we're missing something really significant. I think it's our great problem as we read this psalm and we see the desire that David has, that many of us don't experience this same kind of spiritual desire. We can't relate to David's hunger for God. Think about, um, again, how we, how we view our devotional life, how we're spending time with God, reading the Bible and praying. Often it feels more like a chore than delight. We don't share David's earnest desire to spend time with God. I think the real reason that we struggle with our spiritual disciplines is not a question of organisation and, and time management. I mean, you know, many of us in lockdown have experienced time to develop new fitness regimes or other skills. Actually, the great problem is a lack of desire. And the real re- reality is that we are more shaped by our desires than we realise. Uh, one writer put it like this, we, we fall effortlessly towards that which we desire. We fall effortlessly towards that which, which we desire. He's saying, actually, when you desire something, it shapes how you live dramatically. In fact, you know this, if you you really want something, you don't have to discipline yourself to work hard at it. You just want to do it. Think about when you're revising for an exam because you really want to get that result or the career that comes with it. If if you desire something, it's not difficult to motivate yourself. Equally, I think this is why we find ourselves uh, doing things that we don't want to do. It's not just a question of a lack of self-discipline. It's actually because we have misplaced desire. It's the reason why you you feed yourself on biscuits when you're trying to lose weight or the reason why you text that person even when you know that you shouldn't do it because actually it's a problem of misplaced desire. Actually, when we we step back a second, many of us would say we don't have this kind of hunger. We're more like uh, the Laodicean church in in the book of Revelation where uh, Jesus says they're neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. Our desire for God is kind of tepid. We don't have David's hunger. So why do we lack this desire for God? Well, I think there's two big reasons. One is distraction. We live in a deeply distracted age from the moment we wake up and reach for our phones to the moment we go to sleep listening to a podcast. Our lives are full of information and distraction coming us all the time. 
in normal times, our lives are crammed full of different activities of work and socializing and all sorts of things. And even between those different activities, we, we kind of insert different mini, mini things like reading, reading the news or scrolling social media, um, all sorts of mini distractions. And the real problem with this is it, reflect, it prevents any kind of inner reflection. We distract ourselves from the inner ache in our souls. In fact, I think this is more intentional than you realize. How many of you, when you're feeling anxious, maybe feeling anxious about the day ahead and the things you've got to do, immediately you reach for your phone as a way of just kind of distracting yourself from it, of almost just seeking a little mini dopamine hit um, to try and kind of buoy yourself up, rather than actually dealing with that anxiety. We subconsciously curate our lives almost so that we have no time to be alone with our thoughts. Think about how many of us take our phones to the toilet with us. What about that inner anxiety uh, that, what about if instead actually of, of kind of masking and suppressing that inner anxiety, maybe that inner anxiety actually serves a purpose? Actually, that in that moment, we might run to God and say, God, I want to cast my burdens onto you. That actually we're meant to respond to that lowness by coming into the presence of God and bringing to him how we're feeling. But instead we distract ourselves. It's a little bit like uh, the way you might, uh, you're hungry and you reach for a cookie or a sugary sweet. Um, and it doesn't really deal with the problem of hunger. It's like emo- it gives you a momentary uh, titillation of the senses, but it doesn't really nourish you. In the same way, I think all these distractions kind of distract us and titillate us, but it don't really nourish our souls. Now, perhaps the good news is that this isn't a new problem. Uh, Pascal, the 17th century mathematician and theologian, uh, writing nearly 400 years ago, said this. The only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries. For it is that above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. Saying it's part of the human condition to try and avoid this inner soul sense of inner soul hunger, the sense of angst, of, of insufficiency, of loneliness, or even a sense of distance between us and God that might otherwise actually drive us to seek God. You can, I think you can see this in our society at large. Distraction is, is actually at the root of much of a kind of the spiritual apathy that we see in our culture. But it's also true in the lives of Christians. It's why we're so apt to ignore God. Actually, if we really are to be the people who pursue God like David pursues God in the, in the, in the wilderness, it, it should force us to radically change how we relate to technology, to turn off the, the background hum in our lives, to, to kind of separate ourselves from all unnecessary distractions, to, to be intentional about this. Think about how Jesus says in Matthew 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Shut out those other influences. Think about in Mark uh, chapter 1, where Jesus gets up early in the morning while it's still dark to go and spend time in prayer with his father. To have the kind of hunger that David's uh, calling us to here by his example requires us to pursue an undistracted existence. That's the first reason. The second reason I think we lack this kind of hunger is because we don't realise that God wants to be enjoyed. See, sometimes our vision of God is is only intellectual. Of course, the, the gospel requires us to believe certain truths about who God is. But a relationship with God is fundamentally more than that. I would argue it's fundamentally experiential. Think about the language that, you, that Christ uses about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Psalm 34, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
This is fundamentally sensory language, tasting, seeing, satisfying our thirst, our hunger. It's describing sensation and not just information. See, knowing that the Lord is good is is more than just intellectually assenting to a set of propositions. It means tasting it. Consider the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey. There is a massive difference between the two of those things. And I think when the Bible describes knowing God, it's talking as much about the the experience of knowing him in a sensory way as well as knowing him in knowing the truth about who he is. David is wanting more than just head knowledge about who uh, about God. I think he's wanting to experience God's tangible presence with him in the wilderness. I think really we've forgotten that God wants to be enjoyed. Remember the, the posture of our father in heaven and willing, wanting to pour out his spirit on his children, inviting us to swim in his truths, to, to enjoy his love, to savor and taste his goodness. We need not kind of live on a starvation diet. Actually, he has... He wants us to to see the full gamut of who he is. This doesn't need to be in a kind of church service. This can just be you encountering God, encountering his love in in a fresh way in you and your bedroom. In Romans 5, uh, God's love, it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So this is speaking to an assurance. The father wants the children of God to know that they are his children, to be confident of this. Who don't just intellectually believe that God loves them, but they know that he loves them. All of this should radically change our posture towards our devotional life. It means that time with God is no box to be ticked, no thing to be kind of quickly uh, done to kind of tick that box and say, I've done that. No thing to be rushed through. No, this is a relationship to be enjoyed, to be savoured. Think about this verse in verse 5 where it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Think about your way you, you, you take your time over a good meal. You enjoy it. You savour it. You, you kind of suck the, 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 the fat from the bone or the marrow from the bone or whatever it is. You enjoy the meal. You don't rush over this. So in the same way, we want to chew over the truths of God as we read them in his word. We want to strip away the distractions and enter into an undistracted, precious communion with God. There's so much more than some of us have been experiencing. In Romans 11, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of, wis- and of, of, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There's so much more to enjoy than some of us are enjoying. So that's desire. Second of all, delight. I want to argue that really David's desire that he has in this passage is driven by a deep sense of delight. And you can see this all the way through the psalm. But the verse that just resonates with me, and as I read this psalm, just kind of is, is the, the verse that I'll come back to again and again, is verse three, when he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's bold conviction is he has found a love better than anything else. Remember, this is David, who's been a king in palaces, enjoying the finest foods, enjoying really anything that he wants. And yet he's saying God's love is greater than all those things. The very basis for David's passion for God is because he's encountered and because he treasures the love of God. And yet for many of us, when we think about the love of God, it doesn't really resonate with us in the same way. We kind of take it for granted. It doesn't really seem to lift our hearts to be the delight that it is for David. So why is it David's 
a vision of God's love so much superior to ours? Or or to put it another way, why is uh, David able to say that God's love is so superior to anything else? Well, I would argue it, it, we have to root it is when in his description of steadfast love. Your steadfast love is better than life. Implicit in this word is the idea that God's love endures for all time. Think about this. This is David who's lost everything that's valuable to him. He's lost his throne, his reputation, his kingdom. He's been separated from his loved ones. And yet the love of God cannot be taken away from him. Even as he fears the losing of his own life, he has the love of God. You can take great delight in the permanence of God's love. And I I think that's true for us as Christians too. See, I would argue that the love of God is very different to any other kind of love in the world. Because any other kind of love in the world is inherently insecure and fragile. And in a sense, really that's driven because they depend on your performance. Whereas God's love is very different. Almost all the love in the world that we experience depends on our performance. Uh, Alain de Botin, the secular philosopher, said that Every human life is a story of two great love stories. One is the pursuit of romantic and sexual love, and we all know about that. But he also describes it, this is his book entitled Status Anxiety. He says there's a second love affair in the life of of every person, which is the quest for the love of the world, the desire for status, uh, the desire to be recognised, the desire for success. And in a sense, he's saying, actually, even in doing that, you're in some sense pursuing the love and the recognition of your peers. He's saying both these loves are fundamentally fragile. Even in in a relationship with another person, of course, there are times when you're going to let them down and they're going to let you down. They are, I think it's one of those um, misnomers of our culture that we look at love and think, romantic love, and think it's just just this idealistic vision of of being enraptured by another person. But of course, the reality is, when many of us, when you enter into a relationship, you realise the other person is, is human. They're flawed. They have all sorts of different sins. And, and then it's going to, those sins are going to affect you just as your sins affect them. And of course, there's a possibility with any relationship of, of, of breakdown and, and ending. Think about the love of the world, that desire for status and success and recognition. Well, of course, that's a, a deeply fickle master. You're trying to do all sorts of things to try and get the approval of the world. But in a moment, your career could be over. The recognition from your peers could be lost comes and goes like the wind because these loves are performance based they are fundamentally insecure and they they cannot be the basis of your self-worth because if you make them the basis of your self-worth then you'll be forever chasing them worrying about whether your spouse loves you worrying about uh, whether you've done enough to to make them happy worrying about uh, whether your peers think well of you think whether you've done enough to achieve the uh, success or status in the eyes of the world neither can be the basis of our self-worth but the, ste- the steadfast love that David is describing is utterly different to that because it's a love that doesn't depend on our performance. The Christian can say they've never, they've never done anything to warrant, to deserve the love of God. It says quite the opposite. Whilst we were still sinners, while we had nothing about us that would, that would warrant love, God sent his only son to die for us to, in order that we might be reconciled to God and all of that out of his love for us. If it's a love that we didn't earn, then it's a love that we cannot lose. We didn't do anything to justify it, to make it happen in the first place. The Bible is emphatic to remind us that the love of God that we've received 
is a permanent thing that will endure forever. Think about these words in Romans 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Saying all other loves will come to an end, that you'll lose touch with friends, maybe even marriages will end when your spouse passes away. But we have found an enduring love. And we can rejoice with David because we found that same steadfast love that he describes in this, in this psalm. And really this says two things, I think. One, for, for those of you who aren't Christian, this says you've got to understand this at the centre of the Christian faith. That the love we encounter in Christ is more satisfying than anything else. I think this speaks to the, the gnawing sense of dissatisfaction that we see all around us. I'm not talking about life in lockdown. I'm saying in general life, we recognise that even though we have more material wealth, we have more of the advantages, more of the freedoms uh, than previous generations. We recognise that we don't experience the satisfaction that we're longing for. Uh, the writer uh, Darren Brown, who wrote a book about happiness, is also an illusionist, so, uh, so it talks about uh, how the, the very things that we hope would satisfy us fail to do so. He says, we look for happiness in places that are supposed to offer it, but parties have a habit of being disappointing and the promotion or the new car does not quite yield the joy that we, we expected. The places and things that insist most loudly that they will make us happy rarely do. The sense to which you meet people who have all the career success they hoped for, the romantic relationships, the, uh, the material wealth, and there's still a sense that something is missing. They're saying there's some, there must be something more than this. And when we, we realise that we have a desire that cannot be quenched by anything of this world, it suggests actually we were made for another world, that there's a spiritual longing in our hearts that can only be satisfied by the love of God. But the author C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think in, in this gnawing sense of dissatisfaction that we see all around us, it says that you are made to be satisfied with the love of God but the steadfast love of God. Augustine puts it like this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are re restless until they find their rest in you. Saying it's intrinsic to your design and your purpose is that you are made to enjoy a relationship with God and to worship him for eternity. And even if you get everything else in your life, you will always sense there is something missing because it's part of how you were made, how you were designed until you experience that love, until that love becomes the dominating reality of your life. But also this says something to Christians as well. It says, do not chase counterfeit sources of love. Even though we know that all, everything I've said about God's love, it's so easy, we have a tendency to pursue love in all the wrong places. Uh, Jeremiah chapter two says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's saying this, they've, they've done two things wrong. They've, they've rejected him, the living God, but they've also sought out uh, the living water and instead they've made their own cisterns. Saying, we've experienced the, the living water from Christ or we've, we've received that and yet we are so easily go and search out satisfaction in kind of the equivalent of muddy puddles. 
We've, we so seek other counterfeit sources of love. I think you can see this in our online behaviour. You can see this in um, our, our, the way we approach social media, that we look, that we post different things, our pictures of ourselves and all sorts of other things, to try and, uh, and underneath all of that, even subconsciously, is a kind of sense of how many people are going to approve of me, how many people are going to tell me I'm valuable in their response to what I post on social media. You can see this even in something like pornography. You might think, oh, we're just, you're just seeking it out as a kind of seeking a physical buzz. But actually, I think much of the time it's because we're constructing for ourselves a kind of fantasy life where, where we are desired, where we're experiencing the love that, that I'm describing, that, that of the people that you're looking at. And I think you can tell these things are broken systems because the endorphins don't last. The dopamine hit fades. You receive it and then you keep chasing it and going again and again. Like you're, you're trying to quench your thirst, but it's like drinking salty water that you drink more and more, but actually you just end up thirstier and thirstier. The Christian needs to remember they have found something far better. The steadfast love of Christ never fades. You can keep returning to the fountain of living water. The great temptation to, the great antidote to temptation is not self-discipline, although I think that's really important. There's all sorts of uh, different things you can put, uh, do. But actually, it's this same delight in God that David has. The more you find your great delight in the love of Christ and the promises of, that, that, he, that God has for you, the more you're able to see sin for what it is, that it's just a muddy puddle and it's irrelevant to your life. And it's certainly not attractive compared with the clear living water of Christ. So to fight temptation, we must cultivate desire and delight. And this brings me on to my third point, which is the importance of discipline. We talked about desire, delight, now discipline. See, the danger is, as you read this psalm, that you may think of it as a kind of uh, ecstatic expression of emotion and love for God. And I think it absolutely is that expression of love. But actually, you've got to see that underneath that expression of love is actually a discipline, is that David is, is choosing to love as much as he's experiencing love. Think about this with any, any romantic relationship. If you just think of a romantic relationship as an expression of your, your love for the other person, well, actually, it's, that's, not, that's a really false view of relationships. Anybody who's been married for any sense of time will tell you that actually you're all the time making a choice to love the other person. You see, this, you, there are disciplines you put into married life that, that help you date nights and all sorts of other things to help to grow and to foster the love that you experience together. I think the same is true of our relationship with God, that as much as there's desire and delight, there's also discipline, that we're making the choice to experience and remember God's love. You can see this in a few ways in the psalm. First of all, you can see it in remembrance. In verse 2, he says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory in your glory saying, I can remember when I was in the tabernacle. I remember when I, I saw and, and your power and glory. And maybe some of you remember back to our times together in, at LNS. And you think, I can remember experiencing uh, something of your, your voice speaking to us and experiencing joy as we worship together. And David's saying, I can remember that. And because I remember that, I remember who you are, even through the wilderness. See, this is really speaking to a vital principle, which is particularly important if you're experiencing suffering. It says, do not allow your circumstances to shape your view of God. Instead, allow your view of God to shape how you view your circumstances. David's experiencing suffering, loss in the desert. It would be easy for him to say, well, you know, I've seen who you are now, God, to change his perception of God based on the suffering that he's experiencing. But he does the very opposite. He's praising God. He's lifting his hands in the desert. He's remembering. He's saying, God hasn't changed. 
It's really important for those of you who are going through suffering right now that you say, God hasn't changed. There's always a battle in the life of someone who's going through suffering to believe and to trust in the reality of who God is and not to allow suffering to change how they view God. We can also see a kind of meditation going on in David's life. In verse 6, he says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He's meditating on the truth of who God is throughout the night. This is not necessarily a kind of serene picture. This, this idea of watches of the night it might be he's waking up in the middle of the night and maybe he's feeling anxious and worried. I mean, you know, he's worried about the people who might come to destroy his life. But as he wakes up and he go, as, he, as he experiences his anxiety, he's speaking the truth of who God is. This is something I find incredibly valuable, valuable personally. If I'm feeling anxious, maybe anxious about responsibilities or, or things to do, or, or uh, I, I'm, this often, you know, I can experience this before, whether I'm going to sleep or waking up. I find the most powerful thing I can do is just remind myself of the promises of God, to speak the truth of God to my own heart as I'm, as I'm going to sleep and waking up. I suggest it's far better than any kind of calming app you can find, any calming music or, or podcast to distract yourself. Actually, the truth of God will powerfully speak to your soul. And the reality is, I think we're all chewing and meditating. It's just the question is, what will you chew on? What will you meditate on? If you chew on your worries, I would argue you'll just end up feeling more fearful. Maybe some of you might be chewing on your worries about your finances, possibility of losing your job. I think when you do that, you see, it only leaves you feeling more worried. That's why Jesus says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Chewing over your worries doesn't help you. I'd argue chewing over your desires will only make you feel more unsatisfied. Maybe you're someone who said, I just really wish I was in a relationship. And you, you're just constantly chewing over uh, the, the, the prospect of being in a relationship and of being with somebody. And, uh, you know, all the things. Maybe you start imagining what you might do with them and I don't know how many kids you might have and all sorts of things. But actually what you realize is you're entertaining a fantasy. It might kind of relieve something of the dull ache that you're experiencing in the moment. But of course it doesn't change your situation. And at the end of it, you actually feel more unsatisfied the more like this, a sense of lack, the more you chew over your desires, over things you don't have. I'm not saying that thinking about the future is wrong or planning. Uh, it's a perfectly sensible thing to do. But I'm saying what kind of meditation will really bring you peace and comfort? My argument is that as you meditate on Christ through the day, as you enjoy his promises, you feel his warmth and contentment with you. This is not Eastern meditation of emptying the mind. No, this is Christian meditation of, of rejecting the lies, of, of emptying the mind from your insecu- of your insecurities and, and, uh, and worries and fears, and instead replacing them with the truth of who God is and the promises of God. As you experience fear about an upcoming exam, it's about saying to yourself, no, this exam doesn't change who I am, that God has, planned, has good purposes for me, has, has good works for me, however I do in this exam. As you worry about your future finances, instead of totting up your savings and your finances in your head, say, no, I trust that you're my provider. I need not worry. I'll seek first the kingdom of God. I think this is something of what Paul has in mind in Romans 12 when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is exactly what David's doing in this psalm. He's reminding himself of the truth and of who God is. He's feeding his delight. He's saying, verse 7, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. What I'm arguing is that your reality will be fundamentally shaped by what you are chewing on, what you're meditating on, what's going on around your head. And actually, the reason why the believer can, can have joy, even in the darkest times, is because they're remembering who God is. 
For some of you, this kind of discipline is not really in your vocabulary. You're, you're being shaped by all sorts of different emotions that you have. You're too easily swayed by negative emotions. Oh, you need to make a conscious choice to follow a discipline to meditate on the right things. So really, I want to bring together then this, this picture for you and say to call us to be like David, to be a people who wholeheartedly pursue God who are hungry for him, who desire him because they recognise that he is the greatest satisfaction to their souls, that he is the highest source of joy in your life. To discipline ourselves, to come up with all sorts of ways to, to, to separate ourselves from distractions, to, to pursue uh, times of genuine intimacy, to savour and to swim in the truth of who God is. And to be people who are chewing over, to meditating the truth of who God is, to feed our souls with the promises of God, with his love. I want to conclude with two thoughts. If you're not a Christian, then I want to tell you that this love of God that I'm describing is is true for you, that the living God has made you for himself and he wants to, to, to pour out his love on you, that you might experience a loving relationship with him for eternity. But right now, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you're outside of his love. That you've, uh, you're, you're walking in opposition to him. You're separated from this incredible love, the love that you were made for. And actually, if you continue on this path, you will be separating yourself from him for eternity, the source of all love and peace in the world. So I want to call you, if you're not a Christian, to, to really to invite you to come and receive this love, to surrender your life to Christ. If you'd love, we, 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 all the time, Andrew's mentioned before, we've, we're doing things to help people explore the Christian faith. If you want to do that, just email us in. Or you can find details on our website. But if you're a Christian, I really want to just raise your vision of what it means to have intimacy with God. To be the people who pursue God, particularly in this time of lockdown. To be people who, because we've tasted that he is good, we are hungry to dwell with him and to experience great joy at his right hand. We want to be the people who say, like David, we desire for one thing, that we might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. People who are captivated by his love. May that be true of us. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know the reality of our souls. You know the reality of our desires that um, so often we don't desire you. We want to ask that you would change our hearts. We want to come before you now and to repent of the way that we haven't loved you with our whole hearts. That we haven't desired you in the way that you deserve we want to say living God you are worthy of our greatest desire we want to love you with our whole hearts we thank you for the delight of knowing your incredible love Lord help us to shape our lives around you help us to be people who are disciplining ourselves who are chewing over this truth who can say wholeheartedly with David, because your love is better than life, our lips will praise you. Lord, we want to be people who are hungry for you, who pursue you with our whole hearts. Come now by your spirit and shape us. Help us to be hungry. Amen. Amen.